0: Good morning, church, and happy Advent. Let me ask you a question. When did the people of God begin to expect a Savior? After all, it's the Advent season. Okay, spoiler. (laughs) Get out. No, I'm just kidding. In Advent, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, right? That all of our expectations are fulfilled in him. So when did those start? I was reminded this week of a common way that we talk about the storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Have you heard that before? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, Which is really helpful. The Bible is one unified story Culminating in Jesus Christ. Amen? It centers on Him. But if we're going to plot that uh, out a little bit more accurately, it might look something more like this. It might be something like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It might be something closer to that. So, what is all of this? What is all of the in between? all of it is expectation. And that's what our Advent sermon series is going to focus on. In the Old Testament, God slowly but surely revealed to His people His plan of redemption. And so when did that expectation start? It started all the way in the beginning. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're only reading one verse today, so let's stand together and read it joyfully. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the story of redemption, the way that you've worked in history to bring about our salvation. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. This morning, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and guidance. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do something a little bit different this month. As we walk through these passages, I introduced last week what we we're going to be doing for Advent. Um, we're going to look at different passages in the Old Testament, in the big portions of the Old Testament. The Old Testament can be broken down kind of into four quadrants: the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the the historical narrative books the wisdom literature or the poetry and the prophets. We're going to look at one passage from each of those. And as as long as I have been your pastor, I've only done one type of expository preaching for you. We've walked through books of the Bible systematically. We started with 1 John. We went word for word right through that book. Then we started in Matthew a year ago, and we've been doing the same thing through the gospel of Matthew. And we, we did that with Micah this summer. But for this Short series in Advent, we're going to trace a biblical theme. And so we'll have four anchor points within the scriptures in each of those major portions of the Old Testament. And we'll see how each of these anchor points connects to the rest of the story of the Bible, pointing forward to and culminating in Jesus. So I expect each week to follow a similar pattern in the sermons. We'll walk through the text first. Then we'll see how the text connects to other scriptures and how the ideas in the text are developed through the Old Testament. And then we'll see how these ideas are fulfilled in Christ. Like I said before, the Advent season is all about looking back at the birth of Christ and the fulfillment of that messianic expectation. So wouldn't it be helpful to see how that expectation was built up over time? The hope is that you walk away at the end of December with a fuller picture of how the Bible is related to itself, right? This is the word of God. We believe that and we confess that. And though it was written by many different human authors, they were all inspired by the same Holy Spirit. That means that when we read it, we should expect it to be consistent with itself and to be self-referential all the way through. So here's the main theme that we're going to trace through the Old Testament in our Advent season. The main theme is messianic expectation. Messianic expectation. Now, there's many themes you can trace through the whole Bible. So I'll say that ahead of time. Don't misunderstand this series to be me saying this is the only thing we can see as thematic in the Bible. But messianic expectation is what we are going to trace. And that's exactly what it sounds like. The growing expectation of what and who the Messiah would be. So this theme starts here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. First, the seed of expectation. Seed of expectation. Now most of us are familiar with the creation story. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and that he rested on the seventh he created all things out of nothing, and he created all things good. And on the sixth day, sixth day, we learn that God created man. Verse 27 of chapter 1 of Genesis says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. After the creation of man and woman, God looked at his creation, and he esteemed it very good. In chapter 2, we get a more detailed account of the creation of the first man, Adam, and of the first woman, Eve. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, breathing life into him, and he gave the man a purpose. Listen to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the man is created, he's given life from God alone, And he's given a purpose. But then he's given a command. Right after he's placed in the garden, God tells Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the man is created from dust, miraculously. And he's given life only through the power of God. And then he's given a purpose directly from God to work in the garden and to keep it. And he has given a blessing in the form of the fruit of every tree of the garden, except one. And that's the commandment, to not eat of that one tree, the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And along with this command, he's given clear consequence should he choose to disobey. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The original Hebrew is emphatic in that statement. The ESV translates it really traditionally for us. But the Hebrew includes the word for death twice to emphasize the fact. Something like, in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. So it's no small matter. Eating of the fruit would bring disaster for Adam. Adam. But immediately after Adam is given a life, a purpose, a blessing, and a commandment, he's given a helper. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And that's exactly what God does. First, he demonstrates to Adam his problem of a lack of companionship, of a lack of a helper, by bringing every animal to him. And the conclusion is that none of the animals are a good enough helper for Adam. So God puts Adam to sleep and takes a part of his side, what our English translation usually translates as rib, and he forms the woman. And when Adam wakes up and Adam sees the woman for the first time, his response to seeing her is profound. This at last, this is verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is the first marriage ceremony. Verse 24 makes that clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And now we know the woman's name was Eve, but we don't really get to learn that until chapter 3, verse 20. So Adam and Eve are uniquely created by God through only a movement of God. They're given a purpose placed in the garden to work. They're given a blessing of abundance. They're given a commandment of obedience. And on top of that, they're given a relationship both with God uniquely and with each other profoundly. So they have everything they could ever want. But that's not where the story ends, right? In chapter three, we're introduced to a new character, the serpent. We're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, which is both a compliment and an indictment. The serpent approaches Eve and questions her about God's commandment. Did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, verse one? Which is an easy one for Eve to answer, right? She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And Eve's answer is very interesting, and we don't have a ton of time to spend on any of this, unfortunately, but it's worth mentioning that it seems like Eve adds a little something to God's commandment. Although you'll remember, Eve wasn't even created yet when God gave the commandment to Adam. It was Adam's job to tell Eve what was up. Adam may have added this little bit. Nevertheless, the the serpent latches on to the end of the commandment. He says, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die, the serpent says. And that's a word-for-word direct contradiction of what God told Adam in chapter 2, verse 17. So the serpent tells a lie. And Eve, hearing that she can be like God and resenting the thought that God would withhold something good from them, looks at the tree with fresh eyes. She sees that the fruit is good for food, that it was fun to look at, and that it would make them wise. So she took the fruit and ate it and gave some to Adam, who seems to be close at hand, and he eats it. And there's a lot going on here. That once again, we... Don't have time to unpack all of it, but the point is this. The first humans, our first parents, failed to obey God's command. And in an act of rebellion, they took and ate fruit that they were led to believe would make them like God. And verse 7 tells us that what the serpent tells to Eve actually comes true. Their eyes are opened. Their eyes are opened to the shame of their nakedness. So they hide themselves behind some pitiful leaves. And then they hide themselves within the, the garden away from, notice verse 8, the presence of the Lord. But God finds them. And he asks them why they're hiding. And Adam tells them they're they're hiding because they're naked. And God, God asks, Who who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows right away. God knew that shame would follow right after sin. So then the blame game starts, right? Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, this is verse 12, She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the curses start. God turns to the serpent and says in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel he then turns to the woman and curses her then he turns to adam and he curses the world then god makes better clothes for them in his grace and he kicks them out of the garden out of his presence it's an absolute tragedy isn't it the first human beings introduce sin into the world through their rebellion And desire to be like a God. And now we are like them in our hearts. All of us are like them in our hearts. But I want to rewind to this, this curse to the serpent. I wonder what emotions the first pair would have had as they heard the curse God made toward the serpent. But we got to talk about the serpent. Who is this animal that can talk? And what's going on here? Well, the scripture makes it clear later on that the serpent is Satan. Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 says, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we are dealing with Satan here, at least demonic forces working through an animal. Verse 14 seems to be directed at the serpent and at the dark forces at work in it. And I am convinced that verse 14 has less to do with a formerly legged serpent losing his legs than it has to do with the statement of Satan's humiliation and future defeat. But verse 15 is the real clincher. In God's curse toward the serpent, we see a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now imagine being Eve listening to God say this curse to the serpent, right? You're expecting death. On that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. But God tells the serpent that she would have offspring. Already, God is dealing graciously with Adam and Eve. And God's curse centers on the future conflict that will arise between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And this word, offspring, is really important. Again, if you are one to mark in your Bible, circle the word offspring. Underline the word offspring. Literally, it's the Hebrew word for seed, and it pops up all over the book of Genesis. Genesis. You could read through the book of Genesis just looking for that Hebrew word and it would open up so much for you. As God curses the serpent, he promises Eve something. You will have offspring. But more than that, the offspring will be active. Look at the second half of the verse. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the action verb is the same. Both offspring will bruise as the ESV says. It's hard to translate that word into English. The NIV uses two different English words. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's more of an outcome-based translation, which is, is helpful for us to understand, but it's important to know that they are the same word. It's a violent lashing out. There is enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, violence. Enmity is another English word that we don't use very much. He's saying the relationship will be defined by hostility and violence. And while God uses the same word to talk about the lashing out of one offspring against the other, the violence is not the same. While the offspring of the serpent bruises or strikes the heel of the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman bruises or crushes the head of the offspring of the serpent. One is injuring and one is a dangerous blow, but the other is a killing blow. And did you notice, notice God's use of pronouns here? The offspring of the woman is a man. He would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. But God doesn't speak of the offspring of the serpent in the last line. He talks about the serpent himself. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent in the garden, the the same serpent that tempted Eve. Hmm. So how should we understand this verse? There have been three common interpretations of Genesis 3.15 through time. The first interpretation is simply this humans and snakes won't get along very well. (laughs) Snakes will be a menace for humans, and humans will often kill snakes. And for a people receiving this book in the desert at Mount Sinai, that interpretation makes a lot of sense. Why are these snakes constantly attacking? Snakes are scary, and for many of us, our first impulse when we see one is screaming and running away. But that interpretation speaks to a, a, truly, a, a truth that's even deeper there. R- right here, right in Genesis chapter 3, humanity's relationship with the animal world is turned upside down. Adam had full dominion of the animals in the garden. Every animal was bought, brought to Adam without any incident at all. No violence. Even the, the tigers and the man-eating animals out there. But now, our relationship with the animal world is marked by struggle. Even the nicest animals, the ones that we've domesticated over thousands of years, resist us. And we rarely interact with wild animals apart from violence. This first interpretation is a natural reading of the text. And it's certainly true. But it's not the only thing that's true about this verse. The next interpretation sees this verse as describing human beings locked into a battle with evil... The serpent represents the forces of darkness, and God is telling those forces of darkness that humans will resist its attacks, and humans will attack back with great effect, which would have been incredibly encouraging for Adam and Eve to hear. After all, they just rebelled against God. Would their offspring always be on the side of the serpent, now locked in war against God? Well, apparently not. Apparently not if the offspring of the woman fights against the forces of darkness. But that second interpretation naturally leads to the third, which is this. God is saying that the Messiah would be victorious over Satan. Many through church history have taken that view, and it's the primary interpretation I'm arguing for this morning. The pronouns that God uses to talk about the offspring of Eve are singular, we're talking about one particular person. As human beings resist the forces of darkness, we only find that possible because we are also associated with one particular person. Because Jesus Christ is victorious over Satan. But more on that in a bit. And you can see how each of these interpretations don't really contradict each other. In fact, they're they're complementary. No matter how you cut it, Adam and Eve would have been encouraged by these words that God spoke to the serpent, even as they're expelled out of the presence of the Lord. All of a sudden, they have hope. They have an expectation of salvation. And this, Genesis 3.15, is the seed of that expectation. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see that expectation grow. So second, heightened expectation. If verse 15 really did give Eve some comfort, then we would expect her to be excited about bearing children, even after God's curse on her in verse 16. And that's exactly what we see. Eve expected that God would fulfill his promise made here in Genesis 3.15 immediately. She says in chapter 4, verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Would Cain be the one to crush the head of the snake? We know the answer to that question. Not only was Cain not the promised offspring, he killed his brother, the other male offspring of Adam and Eve. It seems like Cain is more closely associated with the offspring of the serpent. So the fulfillment of the promise is postponed. But but then Eve gives birth to another son. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew Eve, his wife, again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Surely Seth then is the promised offspring. But no, violence increases in the land because of the line of Cain, the line of the serpent, even as Seth's line worships the Lord. So it wasn't Cain or Abel or Seth. Does the expectation fade? Doesn't seem like it. In fact, this promise seems to be a central religious belief of those who worship the Lord. Look at what Lamech, the father of Noah, said about his son in verse 29. He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. So Noah was expected to be the one to reverse the specific curse made to Adam, to make all things right. And God certainly does use Noah, as we're all aware. Noah is not a perfect man, but he's not the expected offspring. Then the theme of this promised son gains new ground when we get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We're introduced to Abram in chapter 11 and his wife Sarai. What does Moses want us to know right away about Sarai in chapter 11? Look at verse 30 in chapter 11. Now, I'm going to be flipping around through Genesis. See if you can keep up. Verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. Hmm. She had no child. As readers, we think, well, the promised offspring can't come from her then. So I wonder what God is doing here. But God expands and heightens our expectation. In chapter 12, verse 2, God tells Abram, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then God clarifies how he's going to make Abram a great nation in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. To his offspring? Abram doesn't have any offspring? He can't. How would God fulfill that promise? In fact, Abram wonders about that himself in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir." And God responds in verse 4, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then God shows Abram the stars and tells him his physical descendants will be numbered like them. So God would provide offspring for Abram. And Abram and Sarai try to fulfill this promise on their own. Through Sarai's servant Hagar, which leads to the birth of Ishmael. And if you want to talk about Ishmael, you need to talk to Andrew Clever over here, Pastor Andrew. Pastor Andrew is currently writing a paper on Ishmael and Hagar, and he will talk to you all day about that. It's very interesting and very good, but Ishmael, in short, wasn't the son of the promise, even as he is blessed by God. God blesses Hagar and Ishmael, but the people of God promised to Abram wouldn't go through him. In chapter 17 clarifies God clarifies in verse 16 he says I will bless her talking of sarai who is now sarah I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her wow sarai now sarah would be the one to give birth to the promised son in fact chapter 17 It's filled with the word offspring. God tells Abraham to name his son Isaac. And then he says in verse 19, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And of course, God fulfills his promise to Abraham by giving him a son, the promised offspring. So the plan of God unfolds in the book of Genesis in ways that are unexpected, and it doesn't stop with the birth of Isaac. Eventually, Isaac takes a wife. Her name is Rebecca, but guess what? She's also barren. Nevertheless, God blesses her and gives her two offspring, and the covenant of God is only continued through one of them, Jacob, the son of the promise. Seth, Noah, Isaac, Jacob. But then Jacob marries two women. And guess what? The wife he loves the most, Rachel, is barren. And what does God do? He opens Rachel's womb. And she has two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. Surely the line of the promise will go through one of those two, right? But God subverts our expectations once again. Jacob has 12 sons. And they are the foundation of a new nation. They are the tribes of Israel. But who would rule? Who would rule that nation? Which tribe would stand out? The book of Genesis sets it up to expect, for us to expect that one of the sons of Joseph. Joseph's tribe would be the one that rules, but that doesn't end up being the case. In, in fact, Joseph's tribe splinters into two half-tribes. It's one of Leah's children, the wife that Jacob didn't love, that takes the crown. Chapter 49, verse 10, we read, The serpent shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And all of this takes place in the book of Genesis. Through much pain and suffering, as God says to Eve in Genesis 3, the sons of the promise are brought forth. But they are only shadows of the ultimate fulfillment. Eve expected that her son would crush the head of the serpent, her immediate son. But then God reveals to Abraham that the fulfillment of that promise is going to take much longer than first expected. And so the, the question now is, okay, will a nation crush the head of the serpent? God does create a people first, and we see the hand of the Lord in every step of that creative process through the book of Genesis. He opens wombs. He chooses whom he will covenant with. He chooses who will rule. And it turns out that Judah will be the ruling tribe. So the theme of offspring is prominent through the first five books of the Bible, but I'll spare you a thorough walkthrough of each one of those. We see the theme of the promised son in Moses and in Samson and in Samuel, but it's not until 2 Samuel chapter 7 when we get the greatest expansion of the promise yet. And I'll let Pastor Andrew talk about that next week. This is what God has been doing the whole time, He's been expanding His people's expectations. God would fulfill this promise to Eve, but along the road to that fulfillment, he brings greater understanding to exactly what he's going to do. It turns out that the words of Genesis 3.15 aren't enough to describe God's good plan. The Bible is a wonderful gift. It is the biggest, if if the biggest thing you take away from this message today is a greater sense of the unity of the scriptures and the importance of the scriptures, I'll be pleased. God's plan unfolds before us. And our expectations as we read are heightened at every turn. Who would be the one to fulfill Genesis 3.15? When we read the Old Testament with that messianic expectation in mind, we start to make connections everywhere. The Old Testament is profoundly pointing forward to one thing. One person. Let me ask you a question. Do you think of major parts of the Old Testament, like East and West coasters think of the Midwest, are there flyover books in the Bible? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Do we just care about Genesis 1 through 3 and then skip to the New Testament? I'd encourage you to remember this missing piece of expectation. God took his time to fulfill his promise and it's worth reading and finding out the content of that promise. But The good news of the gospel is that God did fulfill his promise made to Eve in Genesis 3.15. So third, expectation fulfilled. You know where this is going. This is an advent message. Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ just as all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. Do you remember what the Gospel of Matthew started with? It started with a genealogy, tracing the line of Christ back through David and back through Abraham. But the Gospel of Luke has a genealogy too. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, Luke traces the line of Christ all the way back to Adam. Adam. Because he wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised offspring to Eve. If you've ever wondered why there are so many genealogies in the scriptures, it's because of this. It's because of the importance of belonging to the line of the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of that line, the end of the line. He was the promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. In church history... Genesis chapter three, verse 13 15. Genesis 3:15 is known as the proto evangelium the proto evangelium the first gospel, because in it we find the promise of Jesus Christ in embryonic form. And throughout the Old Testament, God develops our expectation. He develops that theme, and he heightens He heightens our expectation. He clarifies who that offspring would be. All of those who came before him, all of the potential men who could fulfill that promise made to Eve, point forward to Jesus. Like Abraham offered Isaac, God offers Jesus. Like God appointed Jacob to start a new nation, God appointed Jesus as the head of the church. And even as all of the mothers relied upon God to open their wombs, So, Mary's womb is blessed above all. The virgin birth is the most extreme example of the theme of blessing out of barrenness. But it's what Jesus does that proves he's the promised seed of Eve. In his life, Jesus demonstrates his authority over Satan and the forces of darkness over and over and over again. Jesus Casts out demons left and right. We've read through many examples of that in the Gospel of Matthew. Whenever Jesus encounters Satan, even in his temptation, Jesus wins every time, and it's no contest really. In fact, Satan is no match for Jesus ever. Jesus never struggles against Satan to win. Satan is, isn't even able to snuff out Jesus' life through Herod when he's a baby. It isn't until Jesus willingly gives up his life that it seems like Satan has won. And that's where we see the, the serpent bruising the heel of the promised offspring, of Christ in his death. As he hung on the cross, it seemed like the serpent had finally gotten his way. Little did he know that as Jesus was dying, his head was being crushed. The death of Christ accomplished absolute victory over Satan. Satan is defeated in the death of Christ because sin is defeated in the death of Christ. And the division that existed between God and man because of sin starting in the garden had been sewn back together. What the serpent started in that garden, Jesus finished. Death is dead in the death of Christ. Our debts are paid in the death of Christ. Sin is destroyed in the death of Christ. And Satan, the ancient serpent, is defeated in the death of Christ. And in case we were worried that the bruise to Christ's heel would stop his life forever, the resurrection proves that the wound wasn't mortal at all. Praise God. When Christ is raised from the dead, he stands victorious over his vanquished enemy and his minions. And in him, listen, in him, you too are victorious. For all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, victory over Satan is applied to you. In Christ, Christians are victorious over sin and death and Satan. The head of the serpent has been crushed. Praise the Lord. God always keeps his promises. Even the promises included in a curse told to a snake at the beginning of the book. There was the promise of the offspring of the woman who would crush the forces of darkness, and that offspring is Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we worship you in your victory. Lord, you showed time and time again that nothing could stand in your way, that you would be victorious, culminating in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And Lord, this morning, we eagerly proclaim your death until you come, knowing that your death is not a defeat, but an absolute victory. We thank you.